This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, <laughs> did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Charles Duhigg is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the bestselling author of The Power of Habit. His new book is called Super Communicators, how to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. I just read it and I found it really fascinating and helpful for reframing how we approach different types of conversations. Today, Charles is sharing the art and science behind meaningful communication, what makes certain conversations work, and how we can have better, deeper conversations when we move ourselves away from reactivity and into vulnerability. He shares a few tools for approaching difficult conversations, especially when people seem intractable, and his advice for those who dread small talk, like I do. Let's cut to my chat with Charles Duhigg. So tell me a little bit about how communication, I mean, I've read the book, so I know, but well, but Oh, that's very nice of you. It's great. And to be honest, it's so funny, like, I was dealing with a difficult situation, you know, where I just kept being kind of at loggerheads with a particular person. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what am I doing wrong here? Like, and I was sitting at my kitchen table and my team had sent your book over and I was like, maybe this is a good time to start this book. (laughs) And did it help? Oh, let's let's diagnose the situation. What was going on? What do you think the what was the blockage? It helped so much. Well, first of all, what really helped was kind of the framing, your sort of three-pronged framing of like, what kind of conversation is this? Yeah. Sort of as the as the headline, because we think we're having a casual exchange. And when we lose the context of what we're actually trying to say and what the other person wants is like where all the fodder for problems are. 
And there's this incredible maturity in being able to say like, okay, what kind of conversation really is this? What does this person want? And in this case, also what was really helpful was that sort of anecdote on the negotiation strategy where you were talking about this idea of like, how do you make everyone feel like they're winning in a negotiation and in a conversation? It's interesting because I, and I'm curious if this is true for you as well. I found that as I had kids and as I got older, that it's been become so much more clear to me how important communication is, how important good conversations are. Yeah. And, and that it's not just about the other person. It's about me very often, right? I need to, I need to quiet that thing in my head that cut, starts arguing with you before I even open your mouth. So I'm just waiting my turn to speak. That's I have right. to trick myself into listening to you <laughs> and, and not you, not you, but the person that I'm arguing with. Listening and communicating is a very soulful activity when yes. you do it right. And it's easy to make it soulful. Our brains are kind of designed to make it soulful. We just sometimes have to be reminded of how. But it's interesting because soulful comes from an, like a word you use a lot in the book, vulnerability, right? Coming from a place yeah. of, I think the, the the vulnerable piece is what makes it feel soulful. But it's it's very hard to access, especially when there's consternation or friction. So like, how do you counsel people to approach a conversation with vulnerability, especially when there's you know, people are intractably sort of in their position. Absolutely. So I, I think there's a couple of things there. And I think this is the key question that you've that you've arrived at, which is how do we get to a place where we can have an authentic, meaningful conversation, giving all the stuff that's already happening in our heads and your head and all the baggage we're carrying in. And the first thing is to talk about what is vulnerability, because I think sometimes when we use that word, we think of people crying, right? We think of we think of this big emotional display, but vulnerability can be as simple as telling a joke and then seeing if you laugh, right? It can be as simple as as saying like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, tell me more about that, because somebody could say like, it's actually not that interesting. You're wrong, right? And I might not care what your judgment is. I might not care if you laugh at my joke. I might not care if you're interested in my story, but the fact that I'm opening myself up to your judgment isn't in itself vulnerable. And that feels important. And what's, what's interesting is that vulnerability is the loudest form of communication that we can offer someone. And this makes sense. Well, if you think about it, like in a state of nature, you know, back when people were, you know, hunting animals and each other, if something was vulnerable, that you paid a lot of attention to that. That might mean that they're a weak member of your tribe, or that's an animal that you should attack. Or, or if you have a vulnerability, you need to be worried and make sure that the people around you are protecting you. So our brain is designed to listen really closely to vulnerability. If if I say something vulnerable to you, even if you don't want to listen, you almost can't. And we see this in TV shows and movies all the time, right? That that when a movie is well written and it exposes something about someone. We just fall in love with the character. Yeah. And and that's because what they're saying is so loud, even if their voice, even if they're not using their voice, the vulnerability. And so then the question becomes, how do we how do we use this capacity in our brain to get to know each other better? Mm-hmm. And the answer is authenticity. The answer is honesty. And the answer is saying things about myself that feel like they're meaningful. And then when you do the same, letting you know that I hear you, 
that I want to listen to you, Mm -hmm. that I want to connect. Mm. So how did we move from that reaction of vulnerability, you know, where like the amygdala or like the reptilian brain is like, I'm going to kill you because you're being vulnerable to it it being a sign of connectivity and like engender that empathy. It's actually the evolution of communication. So Mm -hmm. communication is homo sapiens superpower. It is what allowed our species to survive so well. And what did we do with communication? Because birds communicate somewhat, right? Other animals can communicate with each other. But what do humans do with communication? We used it to encourage pro-sociality. So if I'm vulnerable, if I'm wounded, and I don't have a tribe around me or a village around me or a family around me, it's deadly. But if I have other people I can count on, other people that, that I know will protect me because I will protect them or I will give to them at some point, then, then all of a sudden that vulnerability doesn't necessarily become a condemning weakness. But the only way that I can convince others to take care of me and they can convince me to take care of them when my turn comes is through communication. That's what we can do with conversation that other animals can't do. Mm. We can express to someone, I want to spend, I want to take care of you and let you take care of me. Here's a vulnerability that I have. I want to share it with you and let's make it a source of connection and strength for us as opposed to something we have to be scared of. So why is it so hard for us then, or so many of us to show up vulnerably in a conversation? I think there's a couple of things going on and, and I'm curious, I'm curious your perspectives on this. Cause I know that you, I've listened to the, to the podcast for a long time and I know that you're very good at having vulnerable conversations. <laughs> and, and I think I part of it, it is, I, I didn't know it until I read this book. And I was like, oh, I do this? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm a super communicator. I think part of it is just, if you've been burned once, you kind of are twice shot. Right. And all of us have been, I mean, I have a kid who's in middle school right now. Think about how awful, like God help him or her. Yeah, it's like it's like the like the knives are out for any oh. vulnerability in middle school. And so you kind of learn this defensive posture. And then part of it or too offensive posture. Yes, that's true. Or offensive part posture. And then part of it too is that sometimes people don't know how to show us that they're listening to us. And so we'll say something vulnerable, and the other person will hear us but we don't know that they're hearing us. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we're not certain that that they're that they're connecting with us. We're not certain if they're judging us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the techniques that's really powerful is known as looping for understanding. And it's just a, a way of proving that you're listening to someone. And it's, you know, you ask them a question and when they answer it, you repeat back in your own words what you heard them say. If it's a tough conversation, you might say, did I get that right? Am I understanding you? And the reason why that's so powerful is proves to you that I'm listening. It proves to you that I've heard your vulnerability and I haven't held it against you. But equally importantly, it makes me actually pay attention to what you're saying. Instead of like coming up with counter arguments in my head, and by, by telling myself my assignment is to listen to Gwyneth so well that I can repeat back what she says to me. All of a sudden I've hacked my own brain into listening really closely. And that's mm. really powerful. Powerful because it elicits a more honest response or fosters. Absolutely. Because it makes it's hardwired into our brains to make us feel safer. When we believe that someone is listening to us, we feel safe with them. Now, let me ask you if if you don't mind. Yeah. So when you have conversations with people who you you don't you don't necessarily know and you want to get to a vulnerable place, what do you find helps you get them there? 
I think for me, it's a, a mix of, it's a few things, you know, there's one sort of veil to get through of like this famous thing, which is a whatever the projection is of what they're holding about who I am before they walk in the room, which probably everybody has to some degree, you know, I can make assumptions about who you are based on your credentials and that you went to Yale and that you, you know, have all this stuff, right? So I think people are always consciously or unconsciously aware that there is that there, right? So there's one one veil. I, I try to show up really authentically always. I sort of just am who I am for better or worse at this point. Like I don't pretend to be something I'm not. And I think that sort of engenders a, a certain safety because I think yeah. people can feel when they're in the room with someone who's a bullshitter or manipulative yeah. or like there for their own agenda. I think I do it with humor a lot. I have like a pretty shocking sense of humor and people like don't expect certain words and you know thoughts to be coming out of my head and i do think i really am so curious like there's so much i want to know for example right now about who you are and what happened to you that this was an interesting topic to you and how you formulated this thesis and like i really want to know the answer to all of that and so i think if you feel seen and like you're a point of interest i think that that engenders vulnerability and good communication as well. I absolutely agree. And and what I hear you saying, and, and tell me if you think I'm getting this wrong, is by being authentic, by making jokes, by by being real, particularly when like you walk into a room and people assume you're going to be like this fancy star and, and you're just a very real person, that what you're doing is you're showing me, I actually want to connect with you. Like, I don't want you to play the role of the adoring public. Right. I want to connect with you. And when someone tells us, I want to connect with you, our brain almost immediately instinctually says, I want to connect back. Yeah. Laughter is a really good example of this. Like you, you made a joke and I laughed. And, and most of the time when we laugh in a conversation, it's not in response to anything funny. We I laugh see. because we're saying to the other person, I want to connect with you. And when they laugh back, they're saying, I want to connect back. Right, right. So what are the other non-articulated signs that people are connecting? And besides laughter, is there body language, eye contact? Yeah. So what's interesting is that when we communicate with each other, our bodies actually become similar. So even though we're separated by hundreds of miles right now, our pupils are dilating at the same rate. Right. Our breathing patterns are starting to match each other. And most importantly, inside our brains, our neural activity is beginning to look similar. And that's what communication is, right? I describe to you an emotion or a, an experience and you kind of have that same emotion or you feel that same experience. That's when we're connected and that's what communication does. And so a big part of this is what's known as the matching principle. That if we're having different kinds of conversations, if I'm having an emotional conversation and you're having a practical conversation, we're using different parts of our brains. And so it's very hard for us to connect. So the matching principle says you need to have, be having the same kind of conversation at the same moment in order to really listen to each other. And that's not just the words coming out of my mouth. That's if you're nodding your head and you're smiling, I'm smiling and nodding back at you. Yeah. If you're frowning and you're telling me about something sad, instead of trying to cheer you up and make you feel better and pretend that, it's not, that you're not feeling something, just say like, tell me more about that. Like, mm -hmm. I want to understand. I want to understand what you're feeling. Yeah. That's how we align our brains so we become what's known as neurally entrained. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. 
I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's a little terrifying as I hear you talk, because <laughs> I think, God, one could really study this as a science and have no skin in the game, no real emotion behind it, and be manipulating somebody into having this thoughtful, empathetic, connected conversation. And it could be false. So it's it's interesting. And and as an actress, I'm curious what what you think of this. So there were these studies that were done trying to figure out how susceptible are we to that kind of manipulation? And the way that the researchers did it is they recorded a whole bunch of friends laughing together, like genuine laughter, and a whole bunch of strangers laughing together. So basically trying to, to mimic it. And then they would play just one second clips of the laughter for subject participants. And they could tell with 90% accuracy who were friends and who were strangers. Wow. Just based on the last year. We have the same way that we're programmed to listen to authenticity. We have this hair trigger thing in our brain about inauthenticity, about duplicity, about manipulation. Because again, in a state of nature, if someone's manipulating you, you're probably going to end up dead. Mm. Now, the exception to this that really interests me are actors. Because actors are in the business of conveying emotions or experiences that they didn't necessarily have themselves and making them feel real. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question for you is when you're acting, does it feel real to you? Like, do you feel like you're, you're pulling something over on the audience or does it feel like you're actually having this experience? If, if you're good, it feels real. I mean, in my yeah. experience, I don't do it very much anymore, but in my experience, when it works, when the audience connects, it's, it's because it's real for you. And that's always the way that I approached it. I, I didn't do sort of method acting where, you know, I, I carried it with me through my regular life and, you know, kept the accent at home and that kind of thing to engender that kind of, you know, confluence of all the parts of it. But for me, it's almost like, the channel opens and you're conveying your and the collective feeling about whatever it is that's happening in the scene and what you're trying to convey in the story. And it just kind of comes through and it, it does feel really real. I mean, yeah. And it, and it seems real. It looks real, right? It feels real to the audience. Yeah. And I think, I think that gets at why, why this doesn't become a tool for manipulation is because if I'm going to fake authenticity mm. to, to really convince you that I'm being authentic, if I'm going to fake vulnerability to convince you that I'm being genuinely vulnerable, I'm going to end up having to be actually vulnerable. Right. Like you can't, right, right, right. You, the That's same way you can't, you can't fake a, a character 
you can't fake a conversation and expect and expect it to work. Even if you're like, you know, a CIA, like the, like a world renowned communicator in the CIA. Yeah. Even them. I mean, it, it's so the first story in the book, thank you for bringing it up is the story about the guy who he's a brand new CIA officer and he's sent to Europe and, and he's terrible at his job because he tries to fake it. He tries to pretend he's something he is. And he tries to be like suave James Bond. That doesn't work. Then he tries to be like buddy, buddy. And that doesn't work. And none of it works because it's not real. And then he meets this woman who's a, who works for the foreign ministry of her government in the Middle East. And he gets to know her. They become friends. He asks her if she would work for the CIA. She starts crying and freaks out and says, no, you're going to get me killed. And he has one more dinner with her. And during the dinner, she's kind of glum and he's trying to cheer her up. And it's, it's not working, right? Because it's not authentic. And then he just decides, I'm going to give up. Like, I'm going to be honest with her. And he says, you know, I understand how you feel that you're disappointed in yourself. I've wanted to be a CIA officer my whole life. And I'm so disappointed in myself that I'm failing at this. Mm-hmm. And it's at that moment that she said, I hear what you're saying. I think I can help you. I feel like we're in this together. She becomes the best asset in the Middle East for the CIA for the next 20 years. But it's only because he didn't, he didn't try and fake it. He didn't even try and, and, and influence her. He just decided to be honest. But then I guess my next question is, with the next source, knowing- Can you fake it? Well, like, could you, right? So you're following a template, like it's, it's really clear what was learned from that conversation and those series of interactions. Could you transpose it to a new source and fake it? And, and fake it? It's a really good question. And there's been a lot of studies that have been done on this. And I'll tell you what Jim Lawler, the CIA officer told me. He told me he tried that. And we've all fallen into that, right? We tell some story to someone and it's really touching. And then it just becomes one of these stories we tell as we sort of pull it out of parties, right? And we're not really feeling it anymore, like the first time we told the story. And it stops working for our audience. Yeah. Now, that's just at a party. If I'm trying to convince you to take a suicidal risk by becoming a spy for the CIA, <laughs> the only way your, your bullshit detector is going to be like so primed right. to pick up on when I'm being authentic. Mm-hmm. And so what Jim Lawler told me is he said, I tried to fake it and it, I failed every single time. Like what I had to do is I had to sit down. I had to get to know this person. I had to connect with them. And I had to be as honest as I possibly could with them about myself. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way that it worked. Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually super interesting because I was wondering, you know, as a former-ish actor and really as a business person now, you know, communication in my life has taken so many different forms. When I was acting, to your point, it's so visual and and emotional. Mm-hmm. I think that is that is true in a, in a conversation about business, but it's so, it's so much more about language. Yeah. And what are you willing to say? Like, how honestly are you willing to say it? You know, what about the other person's feelings? And it just, it sort of set me on this path of thinking about in my work now, how can I I I apply some of these? Because I'm a very, I'm a very like ruthlessly authentic person for better or worse. Like I'll get myself in trouble for saying the wrong thing or whatever. And so for me, this rubric brings like a measure to structuring a conversation in a way where it's really productive or at its most productive. And I would love it if you could talk a little bit about the sort of three 
tenants or bars, you know, the three stool. different kinds of conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I like the bar um, stool. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So, so this actually, I first came across this the insight, which turns out to be this huge insight from the last decade, because my wife and I fell into this bad pattern, which is I would come home from work and I would have had a bad day and I'd start complaining to her about my work and being like, my boss is a jerk. And she very reasonably would suggest some good advice. Like, why don't you take him out to lunch and you guys can get to know each other. And instead of being able to hear what she was saying, I would get even more upset. And I would be like, why, why aren't you supporting me? Why don't you have my back? Like, and then she would get upset because I was basically being mean to her for giving me good advice. And so right. I, I went to these researchers and I think every relationship has some element of this, right? Oh, like, yeah. and we flip, we flip positions. And so I went to these researchers. I was like, what's going on here? Like I'm theoretically a professional communicator and I, I love this woman. We've been together for 20 years. And they said, well, what you don't, what you don't understand is what we've learned from all these new studies in the last decade, which is we tend to think of a discussion as being about one thing. It's about your day or it's about the party that's coming up. But actually every discussion is made up of multiple different kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. And in general, most of those conversations fall into one of three buckets. There's practical conversations where we're making plans, solving problems. There's emotional conversations where I want to tell you how I feel and I don't want you to solve my feelings. I want you to empathize. Yeah. And then there's social conversations, which is about how do we relate to each other and society and our social identities. And they said, when you were coming home, you were having an emotional conversation and your wife was having a practical conversation. And so you could not connect. And so the matching principle says, when we have the same kind of conversation at the same moment, that is what is required for us to make that connection. Mm. And that means I have to match you or I have to invite you to match me. And then we can move from different kind of conversation, different kind of conversation together. And you found that they re all communication really falls into one of these three buckets. Yeah, there's some outliers, right? But in general, or, or let me ask you as a, as a business person, when you have meetings, Meetings are kind of practical, right? We have an agenda. But do you feel like there's emotions that are sometimes in people's heads that are shaping how they hear things and what they say? I'm, you know, we're talking about the for budget, sure. but I'm worried we might have to do layoffs. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or even when it gets more complex, like I'm talking about the budget, but I'm really worried about the fact that I feel inadequate. You feel like, this is revealing something about me in a way that I don't, you know, it's like the, the, re, the, the reactivity piece yeah. is like about something very extremely close to the bone. Absolutely. And, and in those settings, and I'm, I'm guessing you do this in one way or another, it feels like such a relief when someone says, let's put the budget aside for a second. Let's talk about you're doing a great job. Like you, you should not feel the imposter syndrome. You are doing a good job. And, and we might have disagreements about this budget, but we'll work through them. This is not me judging you on yeah. this, uh, your, your, yeah. your worth. When we do that, when we say, let's have an emotional conversation, even just for a couple of minutes, it gets us aligned. And then we can move together to say, now let's talk about the budget. Mm -hmm. And like, is that, do you think that's sort of okay in a group setting? Like I'm, Absolutely. I, yeah, because I tend to have those thoughts you know, to the individual person. And I think I don't want to put them on the spot further by making this an emotional conversation. So I never know quite what to do in the group work setting specifically. I think, I think it's a really strong point because there are times we don't want to shine the spotlight on someone who's feeling insecure. 
And so sometimes the way that we open an emotional conversation or a practical conversation or a social conversation is by asking a deep question. And we can ask the deep question of the whole group, right? Instead of saying, you one person who I'm worried about, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask a question of the group. And a deep question is a question that asks us about our values or our beliefs or our experiences. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's powerful is because it invites someone to reveal who they are, to tell you something about themselves. And they're really easy to ask. Like if you meet someone who's a lawyer, you could say, these are deep questions. What made you decide to go to law school? What did you love? What do you love about practicing law? Yeah. Right. Those are, those don't seem intrusive, but what they do is they invite the other person to tell you who they are. Mm -hmm. And in a group, instead of necessarily shining the spotlight on one person, sometimes if we say something emotional, we say something vulnerable, we give permission to everyone else, including that person that we're focused on, without having to call out that focus and all that attention just on them. So so an example of that might be, wow, this is getting to be a, a heated d- discussion around budget. I just want to acknowledge that I'm, you know, I'm I'm here from a place of vulnerability and listening and I'm really bad with numbers, you guys. So, you know, this is... <laughs> Like it's that kind of thing. That's exactly right. That is so powerful, right? Because what you've done is you've given me permission to talk about what's really worrying me or what's really on my mind. Because I'm worried that like everyone else at this table is better at numbers. But now the CEO has told us that she's not great at numbers. Like I'm terrible. It's, it's okay. I, I, I'm not good at numbers either. And like, I feel all right about that. Oftentimes the way that we show someone that we're listening to them is by saying the thing that we we know they wish they could say themselves and giving them the space to do so, particularly when there's these power imbalances, because I'm the boss and you're the employee. Yes, the more exactly. that we're sort of, yeah, the more that we're a servant leader, the more that our goal is to serve our employees, to understand them rather than telling them what to do, rather than changing their mind, to understand where they're coming from. That's how we become a great leader. I could not agree with that more. That models just humanity that models respect, you know, and, yeah. and, and parody, you know, like, of course, in an organization, there's intrinsically it's hierarchical and there are reasons that it's structured like that. But if the communication follows, it's almost like the communication piece needs to be totally upside down from that. That's exactly right. And, and one of the best ways to do that, because if you and I are having a conversation, whether it's in a meeting or, you know, in the hallways, that conversation needs some equality, right? It needs some parity. Yeah. And the thing that is true is that no matter what my title is and your title is, you are an expert in being you. If I ask you about your life, if right. I ask you how you feel about something, the answer you give me is that you're an expert. Right. And that doesn't mean I'm not an expert. It doesn't mean I don't have the same power as you. Because if you ask me that same question back and I answer, I'm an expert in me. Right. And now rather than being boss and employee, we're two experts on ourselves sitting down and having a conversation. And there's sometimes that you have to be a boss, right? There's sometimes that you don't want to have conversations. You want to tell someone like, I need you to do X, will you please do it? But when we do want to have those meaningful conversations, mm-hmm. we want to be on an equal plane. 
The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. And so what are the ways just to double click on the more difficult conversations? Like what, how do you make that distinction or what are, what are the ways to have the most productive, difficult conversation with someone? There's two things in particular that the research tells us. And in the book, there's a chapter about these, this experiment that was done where they brought together gun control advocates and gun rights activists. And these are people who normally hate each other, right? And they bring them all into this, they're like dozens and dozens of them. They bring them to Washington, D.C. And, and they tell them, okay, look, the goal here is not for you guys to change each other's minds because we don't think that's possible. It's just to see if you could have civil conversations. And they teach them, the first thing they teach them is this looping for understanding that I mentioned. Ask a question, preferably a deep question. Repeat back what you heard them say in your own words. And then ask if you got it right. And they taught folks how to do this. And they found everyone, everyone suddenly was like talking with each other. They loved talking with each other. Like I talked to one woman and she said, I was in this small group with this guy who like was literally my mortal enemy. And we gave each other the, the a Trump hug. Guy. The, <laughs> the like Trump. the Trump guy, right? Like the pro Trump, like go MAGA. And she's, you know, she's, she wears Birkenstock. She like fights against guns. And they gave each other a hug at the end of this conversation because they both felt so heard by the other person. So that's the first thing that we do is we prove that we're listening in a hard conversation. We make that a priority. Right. But then the second thing is what happens next in this experiment. Because they sent everybody home. Everybody said it was this was life-changing. Sent them all home. They created a Facebook group for them, a private Facebook group. And within 45 minutes, people were calling each other jackbooted Nazis. Like it all, it all fell apart oh. immediately. <laughs> and so they tried to figure out why. And, and actually what, what they came across was a bunch of research that's been done about marriage therapy. When psychologists look at why some marriages are successful and others aren't, one of the things that they find is that people fight differently. Mm. And in particular, everyone fights. But when we're having a fight, our instinct is to try and control something. We feel overwhelmed. We feel flight or fight, right? We're, we're, we're scared. And so we look for something to control. And the easiest thing to control, the most obvious thing, is the other person. And so we try and control them by saying like, look, I'm, I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about your mom. I try and I say things like, look, if you just saw things from my point of view, if you just if you just listened to what I was saying, you would agree with me. I might try and control your feelings. You say I you're upset about something, you shouldn't be upset about that. Like like that's not that's not worth being upset about. I'm trying to control the other person and that is toxic. Yeah. That destroys the relationship. But we still have that instinct for control. So what we need to do is we need to find things we can control together. And some of the easiest ones are the environment. If a fight starts at two o'clock in the morning and someone says, look, let's wait until we get a good night's sleep. It's 10 AM. Then we'll talk about this again. If sometimes we can just control the boundaries of the fight. There's this thing called kitchen sinking and marriage therapy, where a fight become a fight about like where we should go for Thanksgiving becomes a fight about like your mother hates me and we don't have enough money and you're a jerk, right? A, a fight about one thing becomes a fight about everything. That's the kitchen sinking. And that is literally that that spells the path to divorce. Right. Right. Whereas 
if you do the opposite and you say, look, I want to talk about Thanksgiving. I only want to talk about Thanksgiving. Like, let's try, let's stay focused on Thanksgiving. Let's not talk about money. Let's not talk about mothers. We're controlling the boundaries of that argument together. Mm -hmm. We might not agree with each other. We might still have differences of opinion. We might still have, have some tension, but we're controlling something together. We're cooperating on at least one thing. And this is where the maturity comes in as well uh, that I referenced because really it's, it takes a lot of practice not to make the conversation about Thanksgiving, like not to drag that stuff into new units of time all the time. Yeah. So does there need to be like deep resolution on topics before or no? No, just- this is what's really interesting. So they, they looked at thousands of couples, all of them fought. They found that for some couples they would fight and it would, fester and it would, the fight would come up again and again. And other couples, they fought. And like, after they finished fighting 10 minutes later, it was like, not like, like blue skies again. They totally have forgotten it. And it turns out it's not like one group solved their problems or agreed with each other more than the other group. Mm. Whether we agree with each other matters so much less than whether you feel like I'm hearing what you're saying. And I feel like you're hearing what I'm saying. Right. Right. right? Once we have that connection, most disagreements, they're kind of unimpactful. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, you want to vote for this guy and I want to vote for that guy. And yeah, you know, it's kind of like a bummer to like live with someone who's voting for someone different, but like it's not like it changes our day to day. And if I can hear why your reasoning and you believe that I've heard your reasoning, then somehow the disagreement, it just seems less important. Mm. I'm just thinking about myself and my own marriage and thinking like my husband and I have one fight that just one and it's been about like blending families integration kids kids stuff over the years like we're we're good now but like the it has always been this really difficult conversation for us and I think like until I was able to resolve some of my stuff around why I was so triggered, say, by certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't have a fight like a normal person. Like, I couldn't have a fight that was contained to the subject at hand. And I, like, went away and did a whole bunch of work around that. And it was only then that I was able to have a productive conversation about, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, for for me, I have always struggled and maybe it's because I'm an Enneagram one. So I'm all about justice and what's right and what's wrong. So I'll like aggregate data points from other things and times to prove that I'm right. It's it's not, it's a quite like, it's not, it's quite (laughs) ugly, not that productive, but as a communicator, that's what I'm working on the most right now is like not dragging stuff from old units of time into this. Into today. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I love that. I love that. And, and one of the things that I hear you saying, and tell me if you think this is right, is in addition to having conversations with other people, we have to have conversations with ourselves. Well, exactly. That's a great we way have, to frame it. And sometimes, sometimes we, we, we say to ourselves, look, well, we're talking about like, you know, who's going to be at whose house, right? When are the kids with us? And when are the kids with, with other people? That seems like a practical conversation. 
But you have to have that conversation with yourself and say, actually, this is an emotional conversation for me. I need, yes. I, I need to let myself feel these things and understand them. Because if you don't, they're going to pop up anyways, right? They're going to screw up the conversation by making you angry or making you scared. And so when, when we sit down and we say, I'm going to have a conversation with myself and the same science and the same compassion I apply to other people, the same empathy that I'm willing to give them, mm -hmm. I'm going to pretend like I'm having a conversation with myself and I'm going to give that compassion and empathy to me. I mean, do you do that? Do you have a oh, self-communication practice? Like what is that oh. like? So I, it's for me, it kind of manifests in two ways. The first is that my wife and I have a lot of conversations. I kind of think it, there's conversations where she's she's basically an extension of my brain and yeah. conversations where I'm an extension of her brain. And we're very deliberate about that. We're yeah, very yeah. deliberate about saying like, we're not going to talk about, we're not going to talk about Charlie today. We're going to talk about Liz and you don't have to feel guilty about that. But then I also have on my calendar blocked off at least half an hour a day where I sit down away from the computer, away from my phone, away from the kids. And I say, let's just check in. Wow. Like, how, how are you feeling today? And most of the time the answer is, you know what? I'm feeling great. There's this thing that's worrying me, but I think it's going to be okay. And so after 10 or 15 minutes, I go and I do my thing. But sometimes I sit down and I'm like, oh my gosh, actually, I'm really stressed and I don't know why I'm stressed. Like, I need to have a conversation with myself about like where this stress is coming from. And 20 minutes in, I'm like, oh, this is what it is. It's my mom. Like, I haven't called her lately because the last time I called her, like we had a fight. And so I don't want to like deal with it again. And and that's actually stressing me out more than I realized it was. Mm. But it's the same thing, trying to figure out what's a practical, what's emotional, what's social. That's and so interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting thing to apply to one's own self, I think. Yeah. Right. Do you feel like you have conversations? Like do you, do you, when you have conversations with yourself, how does it happen? I have conversations with myself quite a lot because yeah. I, I do, because I think I've dedicated my purpose to be around like, how can I really get the most out of this thing? Like life is so finite. It ha it's over so yeah. fast. I want to show up in my fullest self way, like at all times and my, and in my highest self, like, how do I get there? And I've always been a searcher like that. And I've always tried to like go deeper and understand more and, and unpack things. And so I think because of my therapy and because of what I've learned, I, I spend a lot of time throughout the day talking to myself and checking myself. And, you know, I think because I've also gotten so much feedback in my life and it's so valuable to me around like, how can I communicate better? How can I bring like softness into this? Or like, how can I break this pattern, you know, in the way that I was parented with my kids? Like I've, I, I always orient towards that. And I think the only way that I've been able to make strides there is by talking to myself. So like, I try to be aware of all those yeah. parts that drive these different reactions and feelings. It's a, it's a really powerful habit mm. and it sounds like it's become habitual. And the truth of the matter is it's just practice. Mm. I noticed you're talking about parts and there's, there's a branch of, of therapy that's sort of devoted to parts and oh, the IFS. To, yeah. The yeah. IFS. Yeah. It's so cool. I've it done really is. It. I've done a bit of it and I, I think it's just 
incredibly like for trauma, I think it, there's kind of, it's a great modality. It's a really, really. And, and oftentimes when we go to therapy, we are having a conversation with, with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. There's someone else in that room who's helping us, who's helping us realize the questions we're not asking yeah. or is forcing us to answer the questions that we'd rather mm. avoid. But therapy really works because, because it's introspection. Yeah, totally. And I'll mention one other thing that I think ties into this, which is, and, and I, I'm I'm assuming that you 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 believe this and agree with this, but tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like one of the things that you do is you prioritize real, genuine connections with people. One hundred percent. And that that is the most important thing. There's this study I'm sure you've heard of it. The the, the Harvard study of adult development. It's one of the largest and long, um, longest studies we have for a hundred years, almost a hundred years. Researchers have been following thousands of people trying to figure out what makes you, as you get older, what makes you happy, what makes you healthy, and what makes you successful, however you define that. And what they found is that the only thing that is a good indicator of age, whether you're going to be healthy and happy and successful at age 65, is if you have at least a handful of real connections at age 45, mm. right? My ability, and that that means that you've had doesn't start at forty five, right? It means you probably have been getting to know those people for for yeah. years. Years. If you have, it doesn't have to be a huge number, although it can be. But if you have just a couple of people that you feel genuinely connected to, then that it causes us to live longer. It causes us to be more he healthy. It causes us to be more financially successful. And what's really interesting is that researchers looked at: Does this mean? Like, how does these connections happen? And they found the connections happen through conversation, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that the conversations have to happen all the time. I have this incredibly close friend who I haven't seen in two or three years, and I probably talk to him once every four or five months. But when we talk to each other, it is a real conversation. Like we are, we are getting deep. We are connecting with each other. We're being vulnerable. We're listening. And just having that relationship, even though it, it doesn't, it doesn't occupy a big part of my life, mm. it is so nurturing. Yeah. And that's that's why conversation is so valuable. That's why learning to become a super mm. communicator is so valuable, and anyone can can learn it. Mm. Is because I, it lets us connect. Yeah. I have a question for you. I I have a really hard time at parties because I really like don't like small talk, mm -hmm. and I find it incredibly draining and yeah. like, I feel my life slipping through my hands and I just want to like go home. What is the antidote for that? Like, do you, is it to try to have a real or deep conversation or is it just to not go to the party? The funniest thing is that, well, you, you definitely don't have to go to the party. If you don't want to go to the party, you don't have to go to the party. There's no obligation. Like to the party. Sometimes you but have to go to the party. Sometimes you have to go to the party, right? It's your, it's your cousin's, you know, bat mitzvah. You got to go. Yeah, exactly. So what's funny is it takes much less energy to have a deep, meaningful conversation than to have a shallow, boring conversation, right? We think it should be the other way around, but having a shallow conversation is so taxing oh. because, because you're trying to think about like, what am I going to say next? How am I going to get out of this conversation? Like, do I need to drink my drink fast so I can be like, oh, I got to go back to the bar, right? Like, but a deep conversation just is easy. And so I, I have for you the killer question. Yes. Oh, that's a, that was my next question. Do you yes. have any? Okay. okay. So you go to a party, you talk to someone, they're talking about something, and you just say to them, "Oh, that's really interesting. What did you make of that? Like, like why why did that seem important to you?" 
and it works with anything. And what they're going to do is they're going to tell you something interesting about themselves. They're going to reveal something real about themselves. And then once they do, you can answer the same question and it feels very natural. But what if they've right? said something really like, oh, I just got this Lamborghini and it's like, great. And I love, you know, like, how do you, how do you. Okay. So, so you're the Lamborghini owner. So okay. oh, that's really interesting. You know, like what is it about cars that so that seems really important to you? Like what what is it about this Lamborghini that like has given you such joy? <laughs> and you know what that person's gonna say back? They're gonna say something like, Well, it was poor as a kid, and this is like evidence that like I've made it. It's like I yes. get to like pat myself on the back. And you know that feeling. Totally. And you could be like, Oh, I know that. Like I have I don't buy cars for myself, but I <laughs> I I I buy lotions or I buy some something else. Suddenly now you're having a real conversation because instead of asking someone about the facts of their life, mm. you've asked them how they feel about their life. Mm. And when we ask what we, what someone feels about their life, they will inevitably say something real. So do you think that would work? I think it would work. I mean, maybe in LA, it would work less successfully than other <laughs> towns. <laughs> Just to be cynical. You can ask, what is your age? Why is this important to your agent? How, what is your agent? Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> oh my god! Do something about about kids. Yeah. So, how old are your kids now? I have a tw- almost twenty year old daughter who's a okay. sophomore in college, and oh. I have a seventeen year old, almost eighteen year old son. He turns eighteen in April. Oh my gosh! So, like, yeah. you're you're it's right around the corner for you. That empty nest. That, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you feel like what have you learned about communication from your kids? So much. I mean, yeah. I think I learned so much about how to communicate and how not to communicate from my parents. So mm. I think they were amazing at certain things and really not so great at other things. And in my house growing up, there was a lot of judgment infused in conversation mm. And so I, I really made that a focus of my parenting conversation is like to never, never feel like there was any shame in the conversation. And I, I ask a lot of questions and it's funny because I, I was reading a parenting book years and years ago when they were little. And it was like talking about how, you know, as parents, we want to say, Oh my gosh, I love your drawing. Is this of the apple tree outside that we went to? You're so clever that you remember that. And are you excited? And like we pepper them with and fill them up with all these ideas we think that they have or are supposed to have. And that's my natural inclination to do that. But I really try not to do that. So I don't, I try not to say, like, are you excited about Saturday night? You know, I say that's interesting. I, I try to say, like, what's going on and tell me where you are and what did that feel like when they yeah you know responded in that way and how are you thinking about that for next time and i try to keep myself out of it because i think it's our inclination as parents to you know fill up their head with stuff to coach um, yeah, yeah to, coach. To, to parent yeah, yeah. how about I, you I, well you you actually just caused like a mind explosion for me because <laughs> In the mornings before I have a 12 year old and a 15 year old, they're both boys. And before they go to, before Harry, the younger one goes to school, I'm always like, are you excited for today? And he's always like, no, I'm not excited, (laughs) but you're exactly right. That's the wrong question to be asking. I should just be asking him, how do you feel about today? Like, what are you looking forward to? What are you dreading? 
Like, just tell I just me, say, like, what's... like, what's on the agenda and yeah. how are you feeling about stuff and to let them emerge as their own thinkers. And because I feel like in our culture, there's so little space for our kids to kind of just take inventory around how they yeah. are feeling, what's true for them. There's so much input all the time. So I try to not do that. And it, and with phones and TikTok and it. Snap, it gets, it gets even worse. And yeah. I think, and this is one of the things that we do know about consistent super communicators, about people who manage to connect with almost anyone, is that in addition to showing you that they want to connect with you, they also just take communication a little bit more seriously. And they take listening to themselves a little bit more seriously. And it's not a big, it's not a lot, right? It's not, it's like thinking about what I want to say for, you know, half a second before I say it, instead of just blurting the first thing into my mind or, or before I have a conversation or a meeting, just spending like 10 or 15 seconds writing down, like, here's my goal for this meeting. And this is the mood that I want to establish that I'm hoping that we get to. I love that. It gives you such clarity when you walk in and super communicators are not different. Like, they are us, right? They, we are all super communicators to someone. Right. The people who do it consistently, it's just because they they think a little bit more about conversation. They think a little bit more about how do I show this person I want to connect? Mm. And that small two degree difference makes all the difference in the world. Mm. Can we talk, uh, can we, or I guess we've just sort of begin to wrap it up, but I, I do want to talk to you about your four rules uh-huh. The rules of communication, if you don't mind sharing, just because I think it's it's such a nice takeaway. It's something that people can really, yeah, you know, you have you have you mentioned four rules, really. So what are right. they? So the first rule is pay attention to what kind of conversation is occurring. And that's what we talked about. Is this emotional? Is this practical? Is it social? Just just try and figure out what's going on. The second rule is share your goals and ask what others are seeking. And we we sometimes forget to do this, right? Or, or we come in and we say like, I want to talk about the budget. But we don't say, what do you want to talk about? Or we really want to talk about a problem we're having in a relationship. And we never tell our friend, I want to talk about my relationship. And so they don't know to ask. The third rule is ask about others' feelings and share your own. And this is really important because we don't have to ask about feelings. We can just show curiosity in feelings. But when someone reveals something vulnerable, when they say something emotional, we need to reciprocate. And that doesn't mean that we have to say this, we have to share something, the same thing about ourselves, right? If somebody says, you know, I'm kind of down because my aunt passed away, it's not appropriate to say, oh, I understand because I had a pet who died seven years ago, right? <laughs> that's, that's, not sh- that's not reciprocating. That's stealing the spotlight for yourself. But you could say, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like, tell me about your aunt. What was she like? That's a reciprocation that shows that we're both we're both connecting emotionally. Mm. And then the last rule is explore if identities are important to this conversation. And what I mean there is a lot of the research tells us that particularly in workplaces, particularly in tough conversations, we tend to minimize our differences. We tend to pretend that they don't exist. If we're having a conversation about race and you're black and I'm white, we'll never mention that we come to this conversation from different perspectives. But of course, both of us are thinking about it. It's obvious. And so the answer is not to pretend differences don't exist. It's to acknowledge them. But equally importantly, to acknowledge that we all don't possess just one identity. 
You possess many identities. You are a woman and you're a business person and you're a mom and you're a wife and you're a sister and you're a child and you're a cultural influencer. All of those things belong at the table. But if I just say, Gwyneth, as a white woman, what do you think about this? It would feel like I'm pushing you into a stereotype. Right. But if I say, as all of these different hats that you wear, what is that? What, how does that help you see the world differently? Right. Then it feels like I'm listening. Yeah. And that's the last rule. Yeah. And I think under that umbrella of the last rule is the piece that I'm always trying to search for, which is like the sort of Oprah part, like the what happened to you part. Like, why are you showing up in this way? Like what happened to you that besides being an entrepreneur and a writer and a journalist and a this and a that and a dad of two boys, like what happened to you that's making you respond in this way? Yeah. And it feels so good to be asked that. Like when you asked me that, I, I want to tell you all about myself that, you know, like I wrote this book called The Power of Habit like 10 years ago. And I kept Oh yeah, New York emails. Times bestseller. Yeah, Hello. yeah. <laughs> And and I get these emails from folks and they would say like, thank you. The book was so great, but, but how do I change other people's habits? Because <laughs> the problem is the problem is this other person. And I realized that like, it has to be communication. And then I would have, I'm, you, I'm sure you experienced this when my kids were young and I was so busy, there are times that they would come up and they'd really want to talk to me. And I would like, kind of like, you know, say like, oh, go ask your mom or like, why don't you just watch TV for a couple of minutes? And I look back at those times and I think to myself, what a dummy I was. Like yeah. I would do anything to recapture one of those minutes right now. I know. Oh, and so, I know. Believe me. It's, and it's, and they're so cute, right? I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking how cute they I know. are. I know. It's crazy. And it go. it really does go. I'm not on the precipice of this. So it's like, that's like extra resonant for me right now. Yeah. Okay, here I promise this is my last question and then I'll let Okay, you. I love it. No, I'm having so much fun. So I when I have a dinner party, I love to have a single thread conversation. Okay. So that there's no like people breaking apart and like it's I like to have 10 people or less at a table and have one conversation happening. Yeah. It doesn't always work, but that's like the ideal scenario. And I I usually seed a question at the beginning of the dinner. And I'm wondering what question you would ask at a dinner party to facilitate like a single, a good single thread conversation? Okay. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to tell you a question from a study that was done Okay, called the fast friends procedure okay. where, where, where they, these two researchers wanted to figure out if they could make strangers into friends in 60 minutes. And the answer was yes. If they gave them the right questions to ask each other back and forth. And one of the most powerful ones is, when is the last time you cried in front of another person? And you say, okay, what I'd love us to do is during dinner, like, let's go around and just each person, when's the last time you cried in front of another person? And what you're going to find is that half the stories that you hear are not sad stories. They are happy stories. It's people saying, I cried because like my son came home from college and I was just so overwhelmed. Or, you know, I, one guy I was talking to, he said, I adopted these kids and I saw them playing soccer the other day and they're so strong now and they were so weak when we adopted them. So they're happy stories. They're not sad. And inevitably, someone will say, This is the last time I cried. They'll tell their story. And someone else at the table will say, Oh my gosh, like that just made me think of something that happened in my own life. And I feel like I've learned something from listening to you because I also had a fight with my father. 
And like people for the next three hours, no one will shut up. They'll just, they'll be talking to each other nonstop. <laughs> okay. I love that one. That's great. What, what can I ask you? What's your go-to question? What have you found is a good one? My, my one that I've been asking recently, it's like, cause just cause I'm so curious about it. It's like, what is the issue that's currently in your life that you're really working mm. on trying to resolve? Oh, that's a great one. That's a really, really good one. And people are really like, they really are, are, are vulnerable. And, and then, you know, then like I ask, like, how are you doing that? And is it impacting positively or negatively? Like, but I'm, I'm always curious about how people are handling adversity and like at what level it is, like, is it up here at work? Like, I don't like my coworker or is it like, I'm uncovering something about who I am or what I did that I can't reconcile or like, I yeah. just, so I always love to know what people are working on. And, and my guess is that as soon as one person shares something like that, everyone else at the table feels safe Yes. to share, right? Like, like just that all we need is someone else to say, it's okay. I, I, I will, I will share something vulnerable and everyone else is listening as closely as they can. Cause it's such a loud form of communication. And they're saying like, okay, th- I can do the same thing. Yeah. I had the same experience over, over new years when I went to this conference that we were, where it was kind of talking about our lives and I didn't expect to share a lot with the folks in this small group that I was talking to. And by the end of it, like I was like bawling tears and I was like, telling them all about the traumas of my life. And like, it was really, it was overwhelming, but it wow. felt so good. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I, it and it's really- so nice that like when men are able to do that and model that kind of openness and vulnerability. Yeah. It's, cool. it's, it's important. Shit. I better let you go back to your life. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank so you so much, much for ha- for doing it. I really and thank appreciate you so it. much for the book. It, it really, it's it, it really helped me a lot. Oh, that's so good. A lot, a lot. So, that makes me so happy to hear. It's fantastic. Well done. Um, congrats. And, and if you hit another conversational impasse, let me know. And let me know how this new question goes at the dinner table. Yeah, I'm going to. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with Charles Duhigg. I hope you pick up a copy of his book, Super Communicators, which is out now. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.